It is Wednesday, January the 18th, 2023. It is episode 72 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It is the place for pitching each and every week here on John Boy Media with the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn. James Smythe is here along with myself, Justin Shackle. Producer Dan Work is also with us for this ride. And we are officially less than one month away from pitchers and catchers. And I was going to kind of dive in with you guys about maybe recapping wildcard weekend in the NFL, but James Smythe dropped the biggest, most massive informative nugget about the baseball offseason on Tuesday morning. And, and that's when we're recording this, we're recording this on Tuesday, James, what did you reveal to the world? Well, uh, as of six eleven AM Eastern time, Tuesday, we are officially closer to the first pitch of the 2023 MLB season than we were to the last out of the 2022 World Series. So we are closer. And the coolest thing about that is that, we, we, I, that jumps out at you because you think, well, no, like we're less than a month away from spring training. So everything feels closer than it actually is with the, the baseball timeline. So it's technically even closer than that. Yeah. Like we're, we're closer to the first pitch of the new season, but we're really close to pitchers and catchers. So it's a win-win for everybody involved. Uh, like winter solstice, right? Baseball yes. solstice. Yeah. Yes. We're, we're on the other end now. It's all downhill. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to be talking about the, the Yankees being without Frankie Montas to start the season and what it means for that rotation in New York. And we're also going to, uh, Focus on an interesting wrinkle in spring training that I think could affect pitchers. And we are, are going to touch on the Astros, the Braves, the Dodgers, the, the teams that are kind of head in the class and the way it's been for the last several years. But first, like we do each and every week, it is the opener. David, what are you starting us off with this week? Well, you know, it's it's so interesting because, you know, I, I try to equate the off season to my career and what I did in the off season and in terms of trying to make changes, training, everything is so different now because of technology and then the follows on social media are really interesting to me. You could see pitchers gaining velocity seemingly overnight through uh, weighted ball training. A lot of these guys go to driveline or some sort of form of a private instructor, whether you're a hitter or a pitcher and making, and making incredible adjustments, incredible leaps and bounds in terms of exit velocity, arm velocity. I think it's interesting to track that you, you, you're going to show up in spring training and see some guys that maybe threw 93, 94, that jump up to 97 or 98 miles an hour. The same with hitters. I think hitters are starting to catch up. They're starting to get fitted for bats in terms of the size of the type of handle or the type of bats they use and training to increase their exit velocity and their overall bat speed and, and making some, some real gains that way. I think the hitters are finally starting to catch up just a little bit to the pitchers. And, uh, and it's all about speed. It's about strength training. It's about the right equipment for hitters and bats, pitchers, weighted ball training. I think it's a real interesting follow. And with technology, you can see it. I mean, it, it's kids in high school are getting scholarships based on videos they're posting with TrackMan data. So it's, it's a really interesting time to, to follow baseball in the off season and how these guys train and who's going to show up at spring training, making leaps and bounds adjustments and, 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 uh, and increases not only uh, in velocity, how they throw it and how, how hard they hit it. Yeah. Like who's going to be the next Matt Carpenter. Who's going to be this year's version of, of Matt Carpenter in terms of what he did to, you know, revamp his game, go over his swing, kind of re-identify the swing in it itself. Th those are interesting things to follow and they're happening right now. So if David Cohn was still playing, 
what kind of off-season workout content would he be putting up on his social media platforms? I would definitely post exactly just just to to sh- to kind of pass along the knowledge, right? I, I love what Adam Ottavino does in the off-season. He rents out that uh, you know the place in Harlem, the space in Harlem where he sets up his own pitching lab and has his own portable mound. And you know, I, I think that one of the dangers is as though as a lot of amateur pitchers and a lot of these off-season programs are you're throwing off of artificial mounds and tennis shoes. That's a big difference than when you're in actually nails, spikes. You put spikes on on dirt. And you've got to dig that in and worry about your landing hole and your alignment. I think that's a big difference between, uh, you know, kind of feel and real, as they say. But nonetheless, you can make a lot of progress with your own pitching lab. And you throw a pitch and you get the data and you understand exactly how to design your pitches, how to shape your pitches and and what the feedback is. I, th- I just find it fascinating uh, to be able to have access to that kind of information, that kind of data, especially this, the way the ball spins. I'm a, you guys know this. I'm, I've been obsessed with spinning a baseball since I could throw a wiffle ball in the backyard about how to make a ball curve. And uh, certainly studying the axis of the spin and the spin rates and the movement on the pitches, I, th- I just find fascinating. I think it's, it's a tremendous tool to have at your disposal. And I'd certainly have my own pitching lab if I was still pitching today. So you'd be posting the mountain work. It would be more of that versus, you know, the, the, the sled pushes and the medicine ball slams and all the stuff that, you know, I'm sure you'd be so enthusiastic about doing in your, your off season. If you were a player these yeah. days. Absolutely. I think, I think there's, there's things to teach and pass on knowledge to young, to the younger generations, to the up and comers. And I would take it step by step and show the exact, the exact way you go through pitch design. And the feedback that you get. Okay, here's how I grip it. Let me tweak it this way. Here's the feedback on the track, man. Here's the vertical and horizontal movement. Here's the pitch I'm looking for. This is what I'm trying to design and show exactly step by step how you get to that point. I think I would I would love to post those sorts of things along with training videos. Absolutely. I mean, certain guys that are gaining velocity uh, through weighted ball training is is something you see a lot on social media on on, on the driveline side on different sites that that uh, that use uh, that kind of technology, that kind of training. So certainly that's that's part of it too. I would go soup to nuts and, and show the kids everything. All right, let's get to some of these topics that are up for discussion this week. And I, I wanted to start off with one that comes from the executive team level and just get your guys' thoughts on this because recently we had two figures that are part of their respective teams ownership family you have the castellinis in cincinnati and the angelos is in baltimore and they made comments that if you're a fan of either team and especially with the reds in cincinnati it really make you wonder why you would drop your hard-earned cash to support that team and i'm wondering what goes through a player's mind when he hears or reads the type of comments that came from Phil Castellini or from John Angelos, who, whose comments were not as cringe as Castellini's from a fan perspective, but when a team chairman or president apparently makes himself available to the media for the first time in four years and is kind of evasive on his answers and just provides a, a bad optic like what we saw in, in Baltimore. Well, David, what do players think when they hear and read that story and, and how fans interpret it, it has to be different from the way the players on the active team are, are interpreting it. Well, the players don't really have a lot of power. I mean, we saw Brian Reynolds with the pirates actually request a trade. And that's kind of the first time we we've, we've kind of seen that go public in baseball in a while. 
we see it a lot of other sports. You see it in basketball, the NBA, the players seem to have a little more leverage in basketball to force trades like that. But it makes you wonder the collective mentality of a team when you hear that, that, you know what, uh, we're not real. We're losing money here. The, 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 the system's broke. Uh, you know, the, the cable TV model is, is, is going through changes. We're running a nonprofit, you know, on the back end, that is where ownership makes money. The franchise value and building the brand is where it makes money. All you have to do is look at George Steinbrenner when he bought the Yankees for $10 million, what it's worth now, probably closer to $10 billion. He put all of his profits back into the team and built up the brand. Now, certainly it's the New York Yankees. I know they have more resources than the Cincinnati Reds do, but nonetheless, if the Cincinnati Reds were sold today, Castellini would make a pretty nice profit on the back end. Now, year to year on the books, yeah, you can you can you can talk anything you want about profits on the books or taking losses on a year-to-year basis. But nonetheless, the optic of of not trying to win or of complaining constantly about the market you're in just is self-defeating in my mind. And if you're a player, that is certainly demoralizing. And you know, there's got to be a better way to communicate. There's got to be a better way if you're the owner of a team. And if you don't like it or if you're in trouble or if you really believe what you're saying then open up your books. I mean, no, we, we don't really know what's on those books. We know that, that the luxury tax is in place and that money goes back to the small markets. It helps pay for pension and it helps pay for some of the off the field stuff. 50% of it goes back into a, to a pot that, that gets redistributed to, to the teams like the Cincinnati Reds. So, you know, the, you, know, you could talk all you want about a salary cap, but the fact of the matter is the luxury tax is there as a mechanism to redistribute some of the money down to the lower end or smaller market teams. So, you know, if you see a big market team spending money, you know, that money eventually is going to come back to you on the on the back end and on the bottom end. So, you know, let's see. Let's see the books. And if, if you can't hack it, then maybe it's time to sell and take your profit, because I guarantee you the Cincinnati Reds would be sold for a major profit compared to what he spent. John Angelos with the Orioles said he would open up the books. Uh, I would not be holding my breath uh, expecting that this week. Um, the these teams. Castellini called it a nonprofit in a, in a certain way. Yes, they are a public institution. This is not a mom and pop delicatessen that they're running. These, this is big business, big money coming in. Even, even the, the lower, the lower level teams, big, big money, big profits coming in. You owe it to the fans to put a competitive team on the field. Only one team can win the world series. You know, only, you know, now, um, you know, 12 teams making the playoffs, each year, but just the effort you want, you want every team deserves to have ownership that it, it pledges to, to give their all the players are giving their all on the field. They should do the same. And Angelos has talked about, you know, being transparent, the event on Monday that he blew up at uh, Dan Connolly of the athletic, because uh, you know, he accused him of trying to upstage a Martin Luther King day event. Well, this was only the second time, there are only two times in the last four years did Angelos make himself available to reporters. So this is the first time in a calendar year that, you know, anyone's even had a chance to talk to him publicly. That's massive. So if you're from the position of the media, uh, John Angelos called for this press conference. It's an opportunity to ask him pretty much whatever uh, you, you know, is, is a hot topic among the state of the Orioles. So um, as far as 
small market teams go. I like we're seeing a, a faction of small market teams figure it out, finding a way to get things done. And then you have this other faction that, you know, unfortunately are focusing more and more about the have not element of, of, of being a small market team. But it, it's tough to find any sympathy for that faction when you have the Clevelands and the Minnesotas and the Seattles and the Tampa Bays of the league who aren't complaining about the hands that they're being dealt. They're doing their best way to play the hand th that is in front of them. So, uh, you know, a large part of it, it's not about the hand you're dealt, it's how you play that hand. Um, or, I mean, overall, I don't even think that's like a, a, a great analogy to have because there are other teams that are proving like this theory about small markets, not having many resources to operate with and it's false. Um, but if you're going to play that card where you want to find some sympathy for these teams that are at a disadvantage, quote unquote, well, there's another group within that faction that are doing a pretty good job of figuring out a way to find sustained uh, competitiveness case in point, Cleveland, Tampa Bay, most recently, Minnesota, obviously, doing what it takes to retain a guy like Carlos Correa, even though it's a roundabout way that he returned to, to Minnesota, they're bringing in a talent like that. Figure out a way instead of constantly looking at the ways that you, you know, aren't being able to compete. Find a way to get it done. Another one like that, San Diego. Yes. Bottom five market in the major leagues. Right, speaking of the Padres, they have made up some ground in the NL West over the last year. There's no debate about that. And the team they've made up ground on, the Dodgers. And they're involved uh, in a tweet that I saw from David, your colleague at ESPN, Buster only last week. He tweeted that one talent evaluator notes that the three teams who have had the most sustained success in the last decade, the Dodgers, the Astros, and the Braves, mostly sat out of the high-priced free agent market this winter. Guys, is that a coincidence or is there something to make of that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'll defer to James on this as, uh, as I usually do on a lot of these issues. But I think, you know, each individual team in this case has their own story. Obviously, we talked about the Dodgers and wanting to reset the luxury tax. I think that's probably the primary motivator there. Uh, certainly the Astros, I don't know, they got to do first baseman. Abreu is pretty good. So, I mean, they didn't have a lot of needs. You're the World Series champion. You're, you're really deep in pitching and you let Verlander go because uh, you know you've got the depth to cover that. But then you go out and you sign the first baseman and then you bring Brantley back as well. So I wouldn't say they've completely sat out. They, they, they cover their needs. They still signed to Brayu and they got a lot better. So I'm not sure I'd put the Astros in that category as far as that goes. Uh, but but certainly we know what the Dodgers are doing. We know about the Astros. As far as the Braves go, their model is completely different. You know, they're Alex Anthopoulos is signing those guys early and often uh, that they, they're staying to their model. They're trying to keep these contracts uh, under control for multiple years at an earlier date, pre-arbitration years, arbitration years getting bought out. So that's a completely different model. Each individual team has their own model, but I'm not sure I'd put the Astros in that category. Abreu is pretty good first baseman, but you know, signing him is not exactly sitting on your hands in the offseason. Right, but they did lose Verlander too, so there's that part of it. I think it's a little bit of a coincidence, just like you mentioned, every team is different. Every team has their own storyline going on. Um, but as far as the Dodgers go, I think uh, it might just be a, a temporary thing. Um, 
I don't know about you guys, but uh, I think the uh, the Dodgers might be just biding their time, uh, waiting to make a big push for Shohei Otani next winter. I'm with you on that. I think it's a coincidence and a really big one, considering when you see what the majority of the other big time teams that consider themselves contenders, how they operated this season, there was kind of a pattern there where they were really big spenders. So for this to be a, a non-pattern for these teams, like we always talk about these three teams as the, the crop of the league in, in terms of front office structure, how they operate, making shrewd and, and smart moves. Um, so for this to be a pattern, I mean, and beg your pardon, for this to be a coincidence, I think is uh, something that stands out here. But I'm wondering, do either of you think that we may perhaps see a changing of the guard in terms of another team joining these three model franchises or perhaps the other way, one of these clubs fall off their perch as being viewed as the class of the league? Which one? Well. I think the Braves are well positioned as are the Astros. They're in good shape. The Dodgers are the interesting team to follow. Absolutely. I mean, you're going to get really acquainted with their farm system and how deep it is. And, you know, all the talking, we've talked about the Dodgers being the model franchise and being run kind of the envy of the industry of being able to, to sign free agents, make big trades like a Mookie bets and then develop and draft uh, very well. So this is a, probably the Dodgers are the team to watch because they have been, so far and above and beyond in terms of the luxury tax for so many years, they've been at the top of the heap. So now it's going to be, can they, can they maintain that discipline and what is their farm system? What does their farm system really look like? I think is the key there. So of all the teams, the Dodgers are the ones to watch. Can't imagine any of these three really, you know, falling off of the perch, as you said, um, in the next few years. So they're all recent world series champions. Uh, so I guess, you know, we'll see how the 2023 season shakes out. If a team, you know, one of the more favored teams, the, the Mets, the Yankees, if they can can break through and, and go all the way in October, uh, maybe they become in that conversation as well. Yeah, I think it's more likely one of those two specific teams that you just mentioned, James, the two New York teams could likely join this trio of teams that are viewed as the cream of the crop in, in Major League Baseball. That's the angle that I'm swinging towards. Um, arbitration deadline passed last week, guys. And the majority of players in their teams, they they agree to a salary for 2023. There is a handful of players that did not. And one notable pitcher that failed to agree to a contract for 2023 with his team was Max Freed of the Braves. Freed filed for a salary of $15 million. The Braves filed at $13.5 million. What is more likely, a contract extension for Max Freed or the player and the team going to arbitration? Well, you know, as arbitration goes, it's really about the midpoint between 13.5 and 15 million. So that's the way the arbitrator will rule. It's not as if he's, you know, he's going to pick one or the other salary based on if you're $1 over the midpoint or $1 under the the midpoint, theoretically. And that's that's how it's ruled. So it, it's kind of a crapshoot for teams and players uh, in that regard. But that's not a huge discrepancy. I mean, uh, you know, it's a million and a half dollars is a million and a half dollars, but, you know, it's, it's seven fifty. You know, that that's really uh, meet in the middle. We're going to split the baby. We're going to meet in the middle. How strongly you feel about your case how much you want to push it. We're going to find out a lot about how the player feels though. If Max Freed pushes it to arbitration, then that's a key 
sort of a, a, a telegraph that he's going to push this thing all the way through and probably go ahead and, and shoot, shoot for free agency and try to maximize his value and not fall under that Atlanta Braves umbrella of, you know, extensions under value or buying out the arbitration years or getting more money sooner to the players, but over the long haul, uh, you know, getting a bargain on the, on the team's behalf, you know, so that that's to me, something to follow. It's a great point, Jack, that Max Fried's going to, going to telegraph his intentions by whether he settles this thing or not. I think um, arbitration, I suppose. Um, interesting to see how, how this shakes out. And I, I was a little surprised at how close, it was, you know, you see, oh, Freed and the Braves didn't uh, didn't agree. And you see the numbers like, oh, didn't even I was expecting a bigger gulf. Yeah. And I didn't want to pose that question with the I guess the most likely scenario being that the player and the team do agree to avoid arbitration. And they agree on a salary. I want, you know, more juicy, dramatic scenarios there. So <laughs> um, if it gets to arbitration, David, like you said, Freed is is not going to, uh, I guess, acquiesce to that million and a half dollar difference. But then when you when you get into that arbitration room, that's where it gets dicey because then you're going to have a, uh, an Atlanta team quibbling over one point five million for a guy that, if you inject a lot of truth serum into them, I'm sure they say they want long term in order to sustain this run. So this is certainly something that you want to follow here before we uh, before we get to the regular season, whenever this arbitration case is, is going to get hammered down. The thing this really illustrates is the value of contractual control and the surplus value built into the system because Max Fried cannot compare to Carlos Rodon or any other the top shelf, top of the line pitchers. He's, he has to stay within his arbitration class in terms of, of value. Now, if Max Fried... We're a free agent right now, a la Andy Messersmith. I don't know, Rob Manfred, you know, there's a contractual, uh, you know, element in that that was uh, that caused some sort of mistake being made, and he's declared a free agent today automatically. Max Reed would make almost double 15 million probably. He would go right to the top of the pay scale based on what he, his true value really is. He'd be looking at 20 to 25 or maybe even $30 million a year if he were a true free agent right now. So even if the Braves have to pay him $15 million. There's still surplus value built in to what Max Fried's true value really is right now. Is Fried more important to the Braves to retain than Dansby Swanson or, or Freddie Freeman was? Yeah, I mean, that there's obviously a, a, a different risk profile with pitchers and their arms and potential injuries on down the road as opposed to everyday players. But nonetheless, a left-handed power pitcher that can that can miss bats that's postseason proven is a really hot commodity. And we know starting pitching, we saw this offseason that there's just not that many horses out there. There's not that many frontline starters out there. And the ones that are are super valuable uh, because, uh, you know, teams – realize especially in postseason how important that can be and how much rest you can give a bullpen even though you've got a formula and you use your bullpens more nowadays to be able to have a starting pitcher that can go deeper into the games and give your bullpen a little extra rest once every five days or once every week or so is really a valuable asset to have on your team uh and, and, and the guys who know that more than anybody else are the relievers the ones that are that get that extra rest when you've got your horse on the mound that's going seven innings instead of five I'll split the difference. I'll put Freed well ahead of Dansby Swanson, but not as high 
as Freddie Freeman there. Freddie, 12 years as a franchise icon in Atlanta. I think Freed is the most important. I think it still starts and ends with your rotation for all, uh, a lot of the reasons David said. Like the, the, the pitching rotation is a gear that kind of turns – uh, along with the, the state of the bullpen. And Atlanta has had that that stabilized pitching plan for several years now. And a big reason is because of what they developed with Max Fried. So like just, just like you can't hit on all of your prospects, you can't replace all of the talent that, uh, that theoretically leaves your team without any hiccups. And I, I think the Braves may need to get a little uncomfortable when it comes to locking in Max Freed long-term. I think they've they've won in a lot of ways with some of the extensions they've doled out. It, it, they, they may have to concede with their structure with, with Max Freed. Time will tell. Um, the Houston Astros guys, they have not identified a new GM yet after parting ways with James Click. And like James Smythe said, we're closer to opening day now than we were to the fat final pitch of, of last season. So um, should this have Astros fans attention? I don't think so. Cause it really hasn't inhibited them from making moves. You know, even, even though obviously losing Verlander is a blow, but they've still, you know, filled their holes. They, you know, they, they prior, prioritized what their needs were. They got their first baseman. They brought, they got their left fielder back. In Brantley. So I would say, you know, if I'm an Astros fan, I still feel pretty good about it. You know, you had your rookie shortstop that had a breakout year last year. You expect more from him this year. You still have Bregman. You still have Altuve. You still feel pretty good about your team at this point. So it, it, it's obvious that Dusty Baker and, and the new GM are going to have to work together because it, it felt to me like there was some friction there between old school and new school. Uh, last year and the owner was right in the middle of it and, and in my conversations with both both Dust, Dusty Baker and the owner that that was the case that uh, there, there was uh, you know there was a power there was a power struggle there and they need to find a better working relationship with whoever the GM is but you have a wealth of experience in Dusty Baker there he knows what players he wants he's going to have his input and it, it kind of feels like to me that that he kind of won the battle that Dusty Baker won the battle in terms of uh you know, who he wants, personnel, trades. You go to your manager, you ask, what do you think of this trade? Generally, the general manager has the veto power. It kind of feels to me like that was reversed a little bit, and that's why James Click got let go. Well, you need a GM eventually. Uh, at the same time, like as Coney, you were running through it, I mean, the team is pretty much set, and they still, you know, made some moves. Um, Ken Rosenthal's article from uh, the other day uh, mentioned – three candidates uh, that were among those interviewed um, former Marlins president of baseball ops, Michael Hill, who's been uh, working for the league for the last couple of years, Braves vice president of scouting, Dana Brown, part of the, the great organization they have uh, there down in Atlanta, um, former giants GM, Bobby Evans. Uh, so we'll see, uh, we'll see who ends up getting that, getting that gig. It's a good one. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they're missing any sleep. Uh, if you're if you're an Astros fan about this structure right now, we're past Martin Luther King weekend in, in mid January now, less than a month to pitchers and catchers, no GM in place, and yet it's something that I'm sure a lot of Astro fans aren't batting an eyelash over, which uh, in and of itself is pretty remarkable. the The World Baseball Classic, guys, it is going to be played this spring 
And we all know about the new rules coming to Major League Baseball for the 2023 season. But the WBC is going to be played under the old rules. So when I say old, it's the type of game that we've been accustomed to for years and years now. But there will not be a pitch clock. There won't be shift limitations. The bases will, I guess you could say, are smaller now. So they'll have smaller bases than what we're going to be seeing come opening day in Major League Baseball. Is this something that teams are worrying about as they try really hard to get their players acclimated to the new rules as quickly as possible. Uh, It's a valid point, but I I just feel like that I'm sure that behind the scenes, they felt like the world baseball classic is an exhibition to grow the game. The last thing you need is controversy, especially with all the countries involved, whether it's Japan or whether it's some of the Latin American countries, the last thing you need is games decided by a balk because somebody violated one of the new rules uh, in, in, in particular, the pitch clock, which is, I think, where this is squarely falling right there in terms of whether to use a pitch clock or not. Yeah, that's not the way to grow the game right now. I mean, that's something that really you need more time for these for these guys to, to acclimate to. So, you know, I understand why they're not doing it in the WBC because it's an exhibition. It'd be hard to implement. And, the last, yeah, you just don't want that kind of controversy in this kind of forum. Uh, to, to determine the outcome of any particular game. God forbid the championship game comes down to something like that, a rules infraction, and uh, it's Japan versus Venezuela. <laughs> you know, there's a rules infraction, and then you got you got to explain to the entire country why your team lost. It's a, it's a fascinating question because I think it's for the best that they're just going to leave it alone. For now, it's an international event, but there's already going to be more eyes on spring training, seeing how people get acclimated to the new rules. So a lot of players who are going to be participating in this event, which is great, but they're not going to be um, getting as many reps under the new system before the real game start. David, if you were an MLB pitching coach, what would you stress and work on with your pitchers this spring as it pertains to the new rules? Well, I, I would stress, you know, and another thing is, is that for pitchers, a lot of, a lot of the, the slowing down of the process comes in the selection process, meaning, you know, choosing which pitch to throw, absorbing the information, reading the bat, um, getting, getting all those mechanisms worked through before you choose the next pitch to throw. We've seen that uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the pitch com, the catcher's calling the pitches now. Can the pitcher do it? Can Chris Bassett wear the wristband? That's what, I, that, that's what I'd be working with. And I think there's been talk about that being the case. I'm not sure if it's okay as of yet, but I know that uh, Major League Baseball was worried about it. The Players Association asked for the ability to do that, for the pitcher to wear the wristband, the pitch com, and call his own pitches. That's what I'd be pushing for if, if I'm on the, on the pitcher side, if I'm a pitching coach side, within, especially with particular pitchers that, that are slow workers in terms of choosing which pitch to throw. The rest of it's get on the mound work fast and throw strikes. I think it's going to be more relievers. There's certain relievers like a Kenley Jansen or, uh, you know, some of the other relievers, whether it's Kimbrel, uh, longtime relievers that are used to the routine, used to the sort of brooding and walking around the mound. Those are the guys that are going to have to adjust. Starting pitchers, I think you can kind of get into a rhythm a little easier. You throw more pitches. Uh, you're into mixing your pitches more. I think it, it's about calling the right pitch sooner getting on the mound and throwing the pitch. I worry about some of the relievers, though. Those are the ones that are used to kind of having their time 
and, and, and slowing the game down. If you look at, you know, pace, tempo, the average time between pitches, any of the stats that you could have on MLB.com or fan graphs, it's relief pitchers that take the longest compared to starting pitchers. So that's a good point, Coney. Yeah, you mentioned Craig Kimbrell's name, David. It's most likely that we've seen the end of the lean and stare with the uh, the arm dangling as he looks for the, the catcher's sign. I think that that might become extinct here with the new <laughs> pitch clock. That'd be interesting to follow. I mean, there, there is going to have to be some adjustments to some routines by, by certain pitchers. So um, the last thing you need, too, is relievers late in the game that, you know, the outcome is so important. One pitch, one balk, one infraction can really affect the entire at-back and it can affect the game. So there will be pain early in the season. But one thing I've known, you know, baseball players to do for ages is make adjustments. They've made adjustments the entire history of the game, whether it was lowering the mound from 15 inches to 10 inches, the strike zone changes over the years, the rules changes over the years, the designated hitter, players adjust. It'll take a little time, but they're, they're very adaptable and they will adjust. There may be some pain, though. There may be a little bit of bloodshed early in the year with some of these pitchers. All right, guys, let's talk some Yankees here. And a little less than a month ago, after the Yankees agreed to a deal with Carlos Rodon, everyone was sizing up the starting rotation. And many people felt that the Yankees put together the best starting rotation in baseball. But over the weekend, we found out about the first slice of adversity for this Yankees pitching staff in 2023. They are going to be without Frankie Montas to open the season as he deals with shoulder inflammation. He was pegged in, I guess, as the number five starter for the Yankees when you put it down on paper. So the main question here, David, how concerning is this injury with Frankie Montas? Well, for me, just speaking from experience, it's very concerning. Um, If you look at the history, he came back before the trade deadline when he was still with Oakland. You know, the, the injury was there. He wanted to get back before the deadline. The A's pushed him to get back before the deadline so that he could be traded. It seems like he pushed himself a little too quickly then. And then with the Yankees, we saw a diminished value with his fastball and his velocity and the life on his pitches. Back on the injured reserve list again, pushes it again because of postseason, comes back. And and in postseason, you know, he gave up that one big home run in, in relief in postseason. But nonetheless, you make it feel like, wow, now he's had an old offseason and the thing's still lingering. Did he come back too quickly twice? Did he do more damage? What's really going on inside his shoulder? Uh, it's concerning to me. Yes, absolutely. It has to be concerning to the Yankees. You've had a whole offseason now. You're still going to have problems. You're already going to miss a month. We're only in January. You're already making this determination that you're going to be late. Uh, th- that That's very concerning to me. What's going on with the shoulder? You have to have more details. You have to see the MRI. Only he can truly answer that question. But, but yes, it is very concerning. It is considering his history. Um, that said, you probably were probably not going to be penciling in Montas for 200 innings before this to begin with. So I guess the real key is, is it actually going to be a month? We'll wait and see. You, there aren't many details, but just judging from the timeline, and David, you point to your your own experience here. Is it a possibility that this was something that's lingered since the end of the season, or maybe it popped up again during offseason training? Yeah, it makes it makes you wonder that when pitchers come back too soon, you know, as he did twice before the trade deadline, as I mentioned, and then for the Yankees in postseason, did you do more damage? 
And that's the problem when you push pitchers that you don't allow them to heal fully and they they're anxious to get back and then they get back too soon. That's the danger zone. Did he do more damage to his shoulder because of pushing it, of coming back too soon? And uh, that that's just the kind of the nature of the pitcher. Obviously, uh, the, sometimes pitchers need to be protected from themselves, but only the medical staff can answer that. Only he can truly answer that. But the thing I'm concerned about is, did he do more damage? What's really going on in that shoulder that has really lingered through the offseason? Did something happen in his throwing program in the offseason, too, as well, that we're not aware of? But certainly you see a pattern here now. There's three in a row. Oakland, I mean, aside from the rest of the history that James James referred to, but just recent history, you, you, you got three marks here now. The Oakland mark, the IL stint. The Yankees on the IL again, not throwing the ball very well. Stuff wasn't so good. And then coming back in postseason, just maybe pushing it too much. And now in the offseason, what happened? You know, it, it's certainly a legitimate question. You have to wonder, you know, did did he push it too soon? Did he do more damage? All right, who are you sliding into that spot? Is it going to be Clark Schmidt or Domingo Herman? Uh, in that order? Yeah, I think we saw last year in that order is probably Herman ahead because of his experience and Clark Schmidt doesn't quite have the experience yet as a starter in the big league. So it's a little bit of an unknown there. He's very capable of, of being a big league starter, but we just don't know. Domingo Herman showed us last year, even though his swing and miss stuff was down, he's not missing as many bats. It's, he's more of a, a put it and play guy, a contact guy. So if Domingo can keep the ball on the ground and the Yankees infield defense is good, then, then he probably profiles a little ahead of Clark Schmidt at this point. I think Clark Schmidt, the long run profiles ahead of Domingo Herman because of his stuff, his overall stuff has more swing and miss potential, but it's still relatively unknown at this point. It also makes you wonder, uh, does this bring a trade back into play? You know, is it, you know, Miami has a surplus of starters down there and there were rumors last trade deadline of a Glaber Torres for a Pablo Lopez trade. Do, do these things start to resurface now uh, at, at this point? And only the Yankees can answer that. And only they truly know the status of, of Frankie Montas's injury and, and what, what, uh, what his shoulder really looks like right now. I could see the case for Schmidt um, as, as a matter of finally getting a chance to see, can he start? is this an opportunity for him to get a little bit of run and say, Hey, here's, here's a month, at least five starts and let's see what you got. That said, I think I would go with Herman because Schmidt has proven to be pretty good in the bullpen last year, two, seven, four ERA uh, pitching in relief. So I think that's how I would go at, at first. If Schmidt was solid in the bullpen, and yet you keep hearing, well, we think Schmidt profiles as a starter long-term. Clark Schmidt's 26 years old at this point. So, you know, if I, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, but like, if not now, then when um, it's, it's as good a time as any to kind of let him run and see what, what you can get in maybe uh, full spring training operating as a starter, then that full month, like, like, like James mentioned, but uh, my money would probably be on Domingo Herman. I think they're, they'd go that the, the safer route there. Um, and and have Schmidt in the bullpen because he you know he proved that he could be uh, more than serviceable in that role as well. Um, there was some some lighthearted Yankee news as well last week. We learned that the mayor of New York City said that Aaron Judge is receiving a key to New York City. Now this got me thinking. You both know that I attended David Wells's perfect game in 1998. It was an indelible moment as my uh, 
on, on my youth as a baseball fan. And I know that David Wells received a key to New York. I had to look up to see whether or not you received a key to New York, David, for your perfect game. And you did. So what did you open it up with? And well, where is I, your key to the city now? <laughs> key to the city's in storage. Cause I've moved so many times. So you know, I have a big storage unit where a lot of my baseball memorabilia is. Um, I can tell you this, that, David Wells and I cashed that ticket in one night. It was obviously late uh, in the AM hours, and we were allowed to hop on a fire truck in New York City. Now, New York City firemen are the best, salt of the earth guys, a lot of baseball fans there. I, w- I don't want to get anybody in trouble because I'm not sure if it was proper that we were on the fire truck going on an actual call there, but David Wells and I used our key to hop on the fire truck one night, late night, after a couple of pops. And got to go on a call with the New York City, the finest New York City firefighters on the engine, sitting on the truck. It was unbelievable. I mean, we didn't go in, uh, you know, to to the what was happening. It was, I think, it was a, it was an individual woman who I think got stuck in her bathtub. This is what happened that particular night. It wasn't a fire or anything like that, but nonetheless, just being on the fire truck and having that experience and and the adrenaline rush that you get, that was, that was what we used together collectively. David Wells and I used our key to the city to, to hop on a New York city fire truck and and go on a call. Did they let you wear the fire uniform? We did not. We didn't get to wear the fire (laughs) uniform. No, 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 we did not, but they they were great about it. They let us hop on the truck and and go for the ride. And uh, it was a memorable night, memorable moment. It's like you're handed that and they're like, all right, guys, you're, you're allowed like one outrageous expedition with this key here so so choose wisely and i think you guys uh you guys hate that <laughs> cashed it well yeah nothing Excellent. like being on a fire truck at three in the morning i'll tell you that <laughs> so but you do get like an actual key is it like you know a, a big thing is it a, a smaller key that's encased what is it yeah it's an actual key yeah it's a wooden key that, that uh comes in a case and it's it's nice it's a it's great on display it's it's a, definitely you know what it is it's it's well uh it's well presented. So yeah, it's a quite an honor to be able to get presented with that. And I know that that we both felt that way. Nice. All right. Aaron judge choose wisely because now the story is out. You have to one up to David's here. Is he, I think, I mean, he, he has to be the last yank individual Yankee to receive a key to the city. No, I think so. Maybe Derek, but probably I I, I don't think they did. I Uh, mean, it's yeah, go ahead, James. um, A rod in 2007 after he got his 500th home run also okay. uh roger clemens in 2003 he got it after when he got his 300th win and 4,000th strikeout in the same game he he also got one for that nice okay i wonder what they did for their uh their uh the beaten path activity <laughs> all right interesting but we'll uh we'll keep tabs on what aaron judge decides to do with his with his key to the city um all right that's going to do it for this episode, guys. I know uh, the Chiefs are in action this weekend, correct? Patrick, they Mahomes. are. Yes, okay. Patrick Mahomes is in action, and so the, the New York Giants. Yes, yes, they are. Congrats great, to great them. performance. Yes, yes. Daniel Jones uh, has arrived for sure, putting the a lot of the doubters on notice. So we uh, we like seeing that from New York perspective for sure. So well, yeah, good luck to the Giants. Good luck to the Chiefs, and uh, 
hopefully everyone enjoys another great weekend of NFL postseason football. I can say that because guys, I actually watched a little bit of it. So I, I was fully uh, entrenched in that Jaguars comeback as well. So I'm like, I'm getting it now. I, I, un- I understand what the weekend was all about. I'm not just talking to talk here. So uh, yeah, everyone uh, best of luck with your respective teams for another great football weekend. And we'll talk to you next week. Guys, please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you do not miss a beat with what's streaming each week here on Toe in the Slab. For David, for James, for our outstanding producer, Dan Wark, this is Justin Shackle saying that we will talk to you next week on Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media.